Talus International Studios, where customer experience meets digital transformation. Hello and welcome to TELUS International Studios, the podcast series about world-class customer experience and digital technologies and how the two increasingly intersect. I am your host, Patrick Hawhey, and in this episode, we deep dive into the critical role that employer-led training and development programs play in employee engagement. Now, recruiting and retaining top talent has become increasingly difficult in recent years, and the very best employers put an awful lot of time and resources into keeping great team members fulfilled, rewarded, and engaged. And it has been proven time and time again that corporate learning and development programs are a very important string to that bow. So to talk about why L&D is so effective and how organizations can best introduce powerful programs for their own team members, I'm delighted to be joined by Dan Pontifrac, former Chief Envisioner and Chief Learning Officer at TELUS and very much still a part of the TELUS and TELUS International family. Dan's passion for this subject and his expertise in it really shine through in this conversation. And I think whether you're already very experienced in this area of employer-led education or if you're really just starting out, you are going to learn a lot from what Dan has to say. So let's get straight to the conversation. And Dan starts by talking a little bit about his background in this field and his relationship with TELUS. I was um, delighted to be asked to join TELUS in 2008. At that particular point, uh, the organization was looking to make a huge uh, investment in its culture, um, ultimately to, as Darren Entwistle, CEO of TELUS, suggests, culture is your competitive advantage. And so back then, you know, our engagement scores, employee engagement scores were, you know, kind of hovering around the late or high 40s, low 50s. And so when I joined uh, with a with a team of uh, many people committed to sort of furthering the cause. Uh, what what we did was we we basically said, how do we change the way you know leaders lead and employees feel cared about in essence in order to support the customer? And so through that and myriad different uh, options and and introductions and redefinements of you know how leaders lead and employees felt cared, uh, we, we managed to about four or five years later, you know, get our employee engagement score, just a measure of, you know, satisfaction and how people feel morale wise, uh, up to 87%. And so as a chief learning officer, as a chief envisioner, being part of that was helping people, um, you know, with, with collaboration skills, like how do you recognize people? How do people feel as though they have a say, input into decisions? Uh, how do you work from anywhere uh, back when there wasn't a pandemic? So all of these bits and bobs, Patrick, kind of formulated this culture that uh, I think has become world class and certainly organizations around the world looking at it as something that uh, they might want to mimic. So a wonderful time. Uh, we then switched to find ways in which to help other organizations with their own culture issues. And so the chief envisioner title was uh, a second uh, outpost for me. We created a, an organization that went to market, helping our TELUS clients and customers with, with their own uh, issues or opportunities. And so we envisioned, if you will, a, a better caring place of work for them and work with them on that. And 
as much as I left full time at the end of 2018, uh, what I'm proud to say, Patrick, is I'm still in the TELUS and TI family by virtue of uh, being on sort of a couple of retainer contracts to still, still support you know, the customers that are out there. So glad to be here today with you to chat a bit about that and where the world is in this management and leadership culture structure. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised. You're still part of the family with achieving results like that in terms of employee engagement scores. Um, but it was actually, you've, I think you may have semi-answered one of the questions I want to ask you, which is um, the word employee engagement or that, that phrase employee engagement, I, I think can sometimes be put into the into the bucket of those buzz phrases that we hear tossed around quite a lot, probably a bit, maybe a bit like company culture, uh, mission and purpose. Sometimes it feels that they're being talked about by people who maybe don't really understand what they mean or um, maybe because are being talked about because everybody else is talking about it. But mm-hmm. I think you you summed it up really nicely. Uh, maybe you could expand on that a little bit. Just, you know, how how you, the employee feels. Do they feel listened to? Do they feel part of something? Um, it, it's, 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 it's probably quite simple at its core. In, indeed it is. And I think it's uh, it's also fraught with issues. So, you know, I don't want to suggest to anyone that I I am not listening to my own cognitive biases out there when it comes to employee engagement. It is both a quantitative measurement. So there are organizations that will work with you, you know, to assess your employee base uh, numerically. And so it's a Likert scale and you sort of go through a bunch of questions and typically it's twice a year. Uh, But what I'm more interested in, of course, Patrick, is the qualitative anecdotal evidence that does come in those twice a year or hopefully every month uh, type of surveying with your team members uh, and what they're saying about your culture, your team, your leader, you know, how you serve uh, the community that, you know, you're not just serving shareholders, but that the company cares about its total stakeholder uh, composite. And so when you really come down to it uh, and sort of I guess, define what employee engagement is, it it, it comes down to, does that employee care about their role, uh, their purpose, their boss, uh, the way in which that they are able to create value, uh, who they serve? And and you're right, it's it's factors like being listened to, uh, able to to give input, uh, recognized, uh, professionally developed, empowered, autonomous, uh, you know, an individual whom looks at the, able to look at the bigger picture and say, yeah, I helped us get to the moon. Here was my portion of that mission. And when the anecdotals and the evidence and the qualitative feedback suggest that, you know, the, the employee, the team member will say good things about the organization yeah. and its mission at the barbecue, at the football match, you know, at the ballet, uh, you're, you're winning and you're winning over the hearts and minds of your team members in order to then what? I mean, it's a business. You still have to think about EBITDA and profitability and revenues and customer satisfaction. So this is not naivete, but it is a measure of crafting a culture in which you can both win over and, and support, you know, that employee's sense of purpose, their life purpose, but also equally addressing what is uh, the organization's purpose, which is to serve its clients and ultimately uh, any of its stakeholders. 
Um, before we get into that sort of the, the the learning element of that, you mentioned a few different ways that it can be it can be grown and and employees can become more engaged and um, education uh, education through the workplace is something that um, I know is a big part of that and you have a lot of experience in. So we will spend quite a bit of time speaking about that. Um, but just uh, to, to jump back to the fact that you mentioned that this started in 2008, it feels like almost that TELUS may have been slightly ahead of its time in so many ways that, you know, we we employee engagement is, as they say, so hot right now. For the last two or three years, everything has been about employee engagement. But this was 13 years ago. So is that just my perception that it's being talked about more now? Or was this quite early to be focusing so heavily on employee engagement? Well, sometimes you're lucky and, and sometimes there's coincidence. And I was fortunate to be uh, in the boat of both. And the, um, the fortune was, you know, tagging my, uh, my wagon, so to say, to the uh, <laughs> pretty astute and brilliant vision of Darren Entwistle. I mean, anything that he conjures up seems to touch to prescience. And so for, for him, circa 06, 07, you know, he's dramatically changing the way in which that he's thinking about how to serve the customer. And so, you know, coming in at that time, uh, I think was, was my luck. And then the coincidence was of course me coming into an organization that was supported by Darren. I'm, I guess you might say, um, try things and ask for forgiveness later type of guy. (laughs) So, I, I had an opportunity to, to do things that um, supported employee engagement, I suppose, but in a uh, futuristic almost way. So I'll give you a couple of examples with my CLO uh, hat on. Um, typically, uh, and still today in millions of organizations, induction and onboarding uh, is, is kind of like a two-day class with about a million PowerPoint slides. And you sit down, you have a a coffee, maybe a croissant, and then you leave after two days and hope for the best. Hmm. And and I don't, I didn't think that actually worked. That's certainly not engaging, and that's not allowing the team member to feel wholesome to the choice they just made was to accept a job offer and then to be part of whatever it is that they've accepted to do. So, um, you know, I believe that it's sort of a it's a ninety day induction opportunity and and it starts before day one i.e before they start you know in the halls or online with uh, their team and so you know we created um essentially like a scavenger hunt where the employee had a list of things that they had to kind of go do over those 90 days and those 90 days included things like networking things like finding the values on a wall in their office uh, things like finding several buddies that they've never met before in different units. I mean, the list is quite long and a myriad of different things they had to do. But it was all about culture building. It was all about recognizing what we were doing and how you might do it differently than you know our competitor or even another high-tech or telecom organization. I, I even went so far, Patrick, as to instead of just having face-to-face, <laughs> which sounds weird because this we're talking now 2009 when this started we created a virtual world mm-hmm. and that virtual world with avatars etc was a place in which that over a period of time within those 90 days they would meet as their kind of new hire cohort 
and and they would go into this virtual world and and actually learn things about telus in these big uh kind of auditoriums and and meeting rooms and you know rooftop decks and looking out at the stars as a team right across canada as opposed to just you know everyone in montreal or everyone in vancouver go in a room for as i say 16 hours straight so again back to the question and the point uh i was lucky and then I think there's some coincidence with me being one of those, let's just do it and let's do things that are going to impact and, and further the cause of how you really got to think about the employee mindset. And they don't just want to be a bum in a seat. They don't just want to be a number in Excel spreadsheet. They want to feel part of something. So do everything you can and whatever it is that you're doing uh, to, to create such a culture you know, that, that allows that purpose to be found and, and thus enacted. Uh, really interesting and i hope you took out the ip uh rights on that uh, virtual <laughs> that virtual world because you could really cash in right now yeah. um where where we're at it's funny to it's funny when you look back on that and, and the the virtual nature of it and how how natural it feels now but how new it must have been then um so let's let's uh, focus a little bit on that th- that element of um learning and professional development through learning in a workplace um this is obviously one of the, the 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 key weapons in your armory, so to speak, when it comes to developing employee engagement. Is this one of the the things that you found um, is very effective at making uh, uh, a team member feel more part of the team? You know, I have uh, always been personally, you know, one of those um, curious uh, souls and. Whether that's uh, a book, a conference, a person, um, you know, a website, uh, a course, all of it intrigues me. And that sometimes is my downfall because I might go down the rat hole of learning more than I should about a particular topic. <laughs> but that's my own, it's my own burden, Patrick. When, yeah. you, when you think about it from an organizational perspective, and, and TELUS uh, Canada you know, has uh, just over 30,000 team members uh, across the country. And when you, you look at that size, you, you say to yourself, you can't possibly put everyone in a class, you know, every day, can you? But, but that is still today, as we record in 2021, the mindset of many leaders and organizations that training is an event that you send your people to either the course or the, the e-learning course, right? So the face-to-face or the e-learning. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's a bit balderdash to, to think that way. So if you break it down and you say, well, what is learning? And you start with that question and you say, well, first of all, it's not just an event. It's not just a course. And you say, well, how does learning occur? Well, learning happens everywhere, not somewhere. Kind of look at that. And you say, okay, well, if learning happens everywhere, how is that learning happening? Well, again, it comes in kind of three real, I guess, basic ways. There's ways that in which we formally learn. I have a bunch of degrees. Uh, so that means I must have gone to some universities to be accredited with these degrees. So that must have been a formal learning exchange. Okay, so there's formal learning. There is classroom and e-learning, obviously, Patrick learning. Uh, but then I've always argued, and I'll till the day I'm six feet under uh, state, that the more places in which we learn are actually informal and social. So if you kind of think about the triad, formal, informal, social, 
if we're spending uh, 70, 80-ish, right, whatever, percent of our time learning in informal and social ways, where is that happening? Well, that's happening in uh, our networks. That's happening on the Twitters and the DMs. That's happening in ways in which that's not necessarily formal. So you could argue that the informal and the social are non-formal types of learning. So when you, when you start there and then you re-educate both leadership and the employee base, that learning is not just an event, that it happens in formal, informal, social ways, then you get leaders saying, well, you know what? You could uh, create a five-minute video and send that out to your team and have a discussion about it. Isn't that mm-hmm. learning? Uh, you could go to a conference. There's formal learning. Take back some of the bits that you've learned and then have a lunch and learn. Isn't that kind of an informal exchange? Why, yes, Dan, it is. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I could spend hours on this, Patrick, but you get the point, right? As long yeah. as you then say it's not just an event, it's not just e-learning, but that there are myriad ways in which to both define and enact what your learning culture is, then here's the key piece then you extend that to leadership because leadership is also, funny enough, equal parts formal, informal, and social. So when leaders get off their high horse and you know uh, melt the Teflon suit that they seem invariably to wear every day to work, they then realize that, well, if learning is equal parts formal, informal, social, then maybe I, as a leader, also have to be equal parts formal, informal, social. And so, yes, like Patrick, there's times in which leaders have to make tough decisions. That's formal. Leaders have to, uh, you know, approve an expense report. That's formal. But imagine if they open up their hearts and minds a little more to be more informal and social with the team. What type of learning culture do you think then begins to take shape? One that's open, transparent, collaborative, uh, caring. And now you're, you're talking about culture change. So your question actually opened up too, sadly, so sorry about that. But I wanted to <laughs> explain that because that, that is, in essence, a playbook for how other organizations and leaders can look at the, well, what is learning to you question? Actually, learning is leadership. Leadership is learning. When you unpack it and, and define it in these formal and formal social ways, then you have yourself the beginnings of culture change. Yeah, that's that. You, it, it, my question did open up a lot, and it's all really, really um, uh, interesting and important and relevant. Because I was going to ask you about the need, like the the fact that we all learn in different ways. Some of us love to open a book and devour it cover to cover, but some of us can't stand doing that, and we we love mm. to listen to something. We're auditory learners. Then other of us like to view things. So in in it, it, everything you just said there about the different ways you can ex- a sort of. Um, uh, bring learning to the the workplace. Uh, I suppose it's it's ticking all those different boxes in terms of learning styles too. It's a it's a variety and it's reaching different people in different ways. This is exactly it. I mean, I have um, I don't know how, but somehow I've written four books, and um, I know in totality now that uh, there have been uh, more audio sales of the books than the written copy. Yeah. I also know that I have more views on the TED Talks I've delivered than in total audio or written book sales. Yes. <laughs> so 
I'm aware that people do have these different styles and, and inklings on how they might want to learn. So if I'm, you know, I guess um, proud enough to know that it is not all about one modality, a guy here who's writing and speaking and whatever thought thinking for a, a profession, then again, CLOs or CEOs or COOs, like you need to start thinking about what your culture ought to be and how people want to express that or learn or lead or be part of that. And it is going to be different strokes for different folks, as they say. Um, what I will say to to to, to uh, move slightly to the side based on something you said a moment ago, where you have the bosses, um, the boss who's very good at the formal stuff, but is not engaging in the informal or the social side of things. But I think sometimes bosses become bosses because they are very good at the formal stuff. And actually, they're not great at the informal side of stuff. And sometimes when they try, it's just a bit awkward for everyone. And the, is, that, is that a factor? And is it something that leaders uh, need to be aware of that even though they should try the informal side of stuff, but maybe just to recognize sometimes that uh, it's not you and maybe you shouldn't. Well, I think Dilbert's made a profession and a career out of that entire situation, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and, and I think that's part of it. And, and again, uh, this is where senior leaders and particularly CLOs, CHROs, right? People, chief people officers, you know, uh, I'm hoping that their uh, ears and feet are to the ground, ensuring that you don't have that catastrophe from, you know, a people culture, uh, lack of caring perspective. And, and you know, I've seen it firsthand. I'll give you a, a quick story, uh, a non-tele story. But there was an individual whom been promoted to a vice president. And this was, was circa 2006 prior to TELUS at another company I worked for, a large multinational. And uh, he's promoted to VP. And a lot of people were, were like, whoa, we hope he doesn't get promoted. And he gets promoted. And so mm-hmm. sure enough, six, six months pass. And in my particular role, you know, I was in a, in, a, in a learning and engagement role similar to the one I had at TELUS. And I have now had uh, all 12 dec- direct reports reach out to me in one way, shape or form, global role this person had, and say, what, why is this individual, pr- like, I am dying here. What can we do? Can, we, can you help me? And, the, and it just became to the point where the executive assistant also reached out to me and said, I, I got to leave, Dan. This is not working. Yeah. And and so if, however, you know, the the senior leaders had taken a look at, well, what got you here is not going to get you there type of theory, Patrick, which is you might be really good at at numbers or or driving results. But if you are, are completely devoid in the human empathy and compassion and engagement and caring trait or DNA traits, then what that that notion of driving results and if you're a director or manager and you got promoted to vp because of that but you're missing out the other part you will be found out fast yes and in this case you know this guy eventually got sacked yeah very good point. And one of the things we are hearing time and time again, particularly in a post, well, mid to post COVID world, is that the leaders who have shone are the ones with empathy. The amount of times I've heard the word empathy and in the same sentence as leadership in the last 12 months has been incredible. Well, <laughs> let's look at a year ago ish. So um, <laughs> this is a kind of a, a UK, Ireland example. Yeah. Uh, you've no doubt heard of a, a firm called Sports Direct. Yes, and and its founder and CEO, uh, we'll leave his name out, uh, felt that when the pandemic first hit and and you know um, the UK and Ireland went went on lockdown, that 
the the workers of the sport direct shops were actually considered essential workers because people needed athletic wear in order to survive the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> and Emily got completely roasted because he like forgot way even how to spell empathy. And eventually, you know, a week later, he rescinded the order and allowed people to be locked down from home because of the pandemic. But there's a classic example of like, dude, what are you thinking? Yes. <laughs> Very good. Let's, I remember the story well. Um, just a, a, a couple of, of things before we move to wrap up. Um, in terms of the, the, the types of learning that you outline and the many and varied and multifactorial types of learning, um, if you apply that principle when you were developing out your learning programs, are you also um, catering for the different generational differences, I guess? You know, the 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 50-year-old 50, the 50 guy who's got three kids and has only a certain amount of time outside of work or even energy inside of work in, in some ways after the day job is done. Um, and, you know, the differences between him and the 20-year-old uh, girl who's come in bursting with energy and can give uh, 150% to everything that is thrown at her. Um, does do those different learning types kind of cater for both in that case? Uh, I'm going to be a bit of a flagrant foul uh, issuer here, and I, I don't believe in generational divide issues. What I do believe, however, in are you know human differences. So there are 20 year olds that um, are completely overwrought by technology and can't keep up as much as there are 78 year olds and yeah. vice versa. Um, so to me, uh, in the workplace, what you need to think about are uh, offering up learning in ways sort of that meets that team member at a place in which that they're going to feel comfortable. Uh, I've met scores and scores of uh, 70 plus year olds uh, that are coding that learn to code, that have uh, taken on, you know, that uh, plasticity within the brain and the neurology that were, uh, uh, that confounds many of us in ways in which we thought, well, we didn't expect that, but oh my gosh, that's fantastic. So again, I'm uh, not necessarily trying to combat you here, Patrick, but in the organization, no, rather than generationally looking at it, I look at it as human differences. And, and so with that, Again, it goes back to, you know, your almost like your topology. What is it that you're providing the organization that meets learners or, you know, team members where, where it most suits them? And again, back to like kind of the examples we talked about today, you, you, it may have to be uh, ways in which that allow um, extroverts to talk through, you know, their issue, their opportunity, their, their learning outcome. Introverts may need more self-reflection and ways in which to go through material on their own. Ambiverts may need both. Um, so if you kind of look at it with the extrovert, ambivert, introvert spectrum, and then from their layer on experience, uh, okay, well, maybe some folks can, quote, get it quicker. Uh, maybe some folks will need a little bit more time. Uh, and then you look at modality. Well, some folks will want a combination of your media outposts, outposts sorry, uh, and some may want just one of the X number, nine, 10 that you've offered. It's all good. So it's like, it's, it's kind of like a quilt. 
um, rather than a than a than a, a lane in a swim. Like people say, stick in your swim lanes and you know offer it in those swim lanes. I don't agree. Take out the lanes, put everyone in the pool, but figure out like what type of PFD is required in order for everyone to float. Excellent point. Really, really excellent points there. Make perfect sense. Um, do you ever come across uh, em- employers and companies that you work with uh, where the person where, where there's a bit of a fear about training people up um, so well that they feel beautifully qualified to leave the company and join a role elsewhere that you've just trained them up for? Can that be a bit of a dilemma for people? I think it's the best dilemma ever. And, yes. and the reason being is this, if, if A, your organization is not investing uh, in your people, be it uh, your core folks or sometimes what are called then the next layer, the high performers, the top 10, you know, different organizations have different nomenclature for it. Uh, what, what, where do you stand? Why, why would you not invest in your people? Now, there's where culture comes in, right? So if you're investing in your people, uh, and you've created this wonderful culture and you have career pathing and promotion opportunities and meaty projects. And maybe you have set up a gig economy inside the organization so that you can have six, 12 month rotations or, you know, sticking their teeth on these meaty, awesome projects that otherwise may uh, allow them uh, real world learning as opposed to just sort of the investment training that we're talking about. That's all culture based uh, opportunity. And what does it do? It builds in retention. Yes. So for those that may want to uh, think that, you know, we, we shouldn't invest in these people because if we invest in them to a point where they're going to leave, then that's a lost investment. Well, I say take the risk, but take the risk with the building of that culture that that makes it so difficult for them to want to leave because you've created so many different ways in which for them to feel engaged. It is a yin yang, not just the yin. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, if if a company is listening now and they haven't a particularly well developed learning program, professional development program, um, how would you su- suggest that they make the first steps? Because I'm sure listening to you know everything you've just described, um, it might seem like wow, that's years in the making, and God, how are we ever going to even get started on this? So, how would you suggest uh, they could start? Well, I mean, let's we'll talk about culture and engagement second. But first, when you're kind of looking at the learning side, I would I would first of all look at the budget, audit, and that's exactly what I've done twice now in two like large CLO roles I've had. You, you look at the budget. You say, how are we spending our money right now? So you know whether that's the investment on the team, uh, whether that's uh, with suppliers and partners, uh, whether that's with technology, or often learning teams do not invest in the technology, and I and I say okay. Well, there's the pie. How do we best want to use this in that formal and formal social split that I alluded to? Uh, and then once you kind of say, well, here's a general idea. Let's look at this first year, maybe second year, right? And then get feedback, iterate, et cetera. Then I go to, I mean, no learning function inside any organization can do it on its own. Let's be clear. And so uh, then you kind of look at, A, the internal stakeholders. Who else is doing learning in the organization? And everyone's doing learning if we are following the formal and formal social uh, rules, right? So that means there's probably lots of opportunity in which to partner inside the organization or at least 
to make sure that you're partnering with rogue groups, if you will, so that everyone is singing from the same choir sheet of what is learning in this organization. So get the definitions down, make sure it's systematized so that everyone is following the same narrative, that it's not just all kind of training here that's a classroom learning, or in fact, there are some orgs that kind of uh, think that they're so progressive that they don't have any of that and they just do all the social stuff. Well, that's not good enough either, Patrick. So again, budget, definitions, reach out to the stakeholders internally and, and not centralize. I'm not a fan of that, but I am a fan of uh, redefining to ensure that it's systemic to all employees so it's clear so that yeah. there's one message that it's, oh, so then act two would be, all right, from that investment perspective, and this is where it really comes in, what, who's investing what and what technology? And can we be part of that? So when a learning team starts investing in the organization's technology and investing the budget, you know, typically that's partnering with the CIO and the tech team there, or maybe a line of business. So I will often, uh, whether I'm consulting uh, or working with organization in that manner, or as I've mentioned with the TELUS example or the one previous to that, SAP, uh, you, you walk over to the CIO's door on that team and say, how can we partner? Now, most learning people don't do that, but you should. Like go into partnership with the CIO to say, I want to invest in the organization's technology. That's how strongly I believe in it. So how do we win here? Then number three, uh, of three, I guess I'll suggest and stop there, is I would fire your suppliers. Oh, yeah. The reason I say <laughs> fire your suppliers is because they're still living in the anachronistic world of training bums and seats. Yes. So once you've defined everything, looked at your budget, partnered with the CIO, figured out what technologies you want, then welcome in the right suppliers under the white label of your organization, it's called TELUS International, to then supply you side by side with your own team members with the right training through the right formal and formal social means. You do those three steps, you're, you're going to be eons ahead of every other organization. But then, of course, make sure equally at the same time, your CLO team and you are working with whomever else to make sure that the culture and the engagement factors and the criteria we set there are equally done at the same time. You, you really can't have one without the other. Learning needs the culture to be that formal, informal, social, collaborative, transparent, open, work from anywhere type of culture to succeed. Otherwise, it sits on its own island of misfit and outcast toys. It's really clear and really interesting stuff. Um, Dan, I'm about to wrap up, but before before I do, um, I was looking around your excellent website and you can give out the address before we wrap up. Um, and I came across, I'm not sure if it's a short course or, or what it is, but um, it really caught my eye. And it, I think it was something like um, a course entitled, You Can't Manage Time, You Can Only Change Your Behavior or something <laughs> along those lines. And because I think particularly in the last year, uh, time management has become incredibly difficult for many of us because we don't have the traditional barriers of walking out the door of work and walking back in the door of work. Um, you know, there isn't 10 minutes between calls anymore so that you can actually go to a different room. It's now like calls back to back. And I think a lot of people feel overwhelmed and feel like they are not managing their time. So I'd love to briefly mention, talk to you about that, that, that thing that you mentioned. You can't manage time. Ultimately, you can only change your behavior. What did you mean by that? <laughs> you are astute and kind at the same time, Patrick. Uh, the, um, the fact of the matter is 
we are, uh, prior to the pandemic, frenetic, distracted, and stressed. Uh, essentially, if you recall the Pixar movie Up, we're like the dogs. I had the talking piece and we say squirrel, essentially yeah. every four seconds. Then the pandemic hits and everyone's sent home. And now, because people don't have to commute from wherever to Dublin or from wherever to London, uh, they've got, you know, an extra hour, maybe even two hours a day. They don't have to be on the trains. And so now, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, we could we could use that time. Both the employee says that and somehow leaders have suggested that there's there's more to do now. And because we're in a pandemic and lonely and in lockdown, we're like, ah, I just keep working. You know, why, why worry about my health and fitness and why, why you know, disengage myself from the, the laptop? I'll just, I'll just keep plowing down. And we've seen, Patrick, what's happened over the last 15 months, the frightening stats of mental health and wellness, physical wellness uh, or unwellness, I guess, and so on. Okay. So here we have now, we've layered on uh, prior to the pandemic, that distractedness, that freneticism. We've got the pandemic. Now we're overburdened with actually more work. And what does it all come down to? We leaders, team members, both think that we we can sort of time manage ourselves, and and it is the worst phrase I think in all of corporate lexicon. Time management, yeah, come on, like you can't manage time. The only thing you really can do is change your behavior that relates to time. So, what are behavior changes? Okay, so can a leader talk with the team? about what are the norms that we want to uh, utilize in order to be healthy, i.e. the team norms. So, for example, should we have back-to-back meetings? That's a great example, Patrick. But let's just say you have to have, uh, Patrick, you have to have back-to-back meetings. Well, then do the meetings have to be 60 minutes? Maybe they should be 50. And that 10-minute break or even 45, that 15, 10-minute break, allows you to get up and go to the loo, uh, make a latte, uh, just have a brain break, go outside and catch some vitamin D. Oh, the like, luxury, why is it we the default? Luxury. Yeah, in, in Outlook or Google or whatever your calendar is, why do we default to whatever it is? Like, stop. So there's one example. You're behaving to the technology and you're not managing time. You're just misbehaving. Now, then, what about capacity? Are, are leaders asking themselves, what's the actual capacity of my team? Now, here's where time comes in. You and I are equal. We both have 168 hours a week to use. Now, arguably, your organization and mine pay us for 40 of those 168. Okay. So if you're a leader, have you figured out how many team members you have? How, multiply that by 40. And with all the effort that's required to do the projects, the day-to-day, the operations, keep the lights on, whatever you're doing, do you have, if you have seven team members, 280 hours of work figured out a week from a capacity perspective? That's a behavior. You're changing the behavior of how you're looking at your team, not managing their time, but looking at it behaviorally. What do we do with 280? And how as a team can we make sure that we're not overburdening the team, pressurizing them, putting through them uh, through an inordinate amount of stress, and so on? So there's, there's tactics that are actually behavior changes that leaders and team members, both from a self and as a team as a whole, need to take. 
And what I get so uh, disgruntled and, as Denise knows, my better half, very grumpy about when I when I don't see teams and leaders taking the, quote, time, pun intended, to, to change the behavior of how they want to operate, I see it all the time. I see the stress. I see the overburdening uh, uh, loads. And then what happens, Patrick, is disengagement ensues. Yeah. And it's all related back to culture. If you don't care, they'll leave. And I think, you know, I'm not trying to be apocalyptic here, but 2022, if leaders don't figure out for the rest of this year, 2022 is going to be a day of reckoning or a year of reckoning because we haven't figured out how we're supporting our team, whether it's with this behavior of time point or the general relationship to engagement. And you're going to see a lot of fleeing of team members going to places and leaders whom do. Yeah. And after all the investment put into those employees, like what a waste in so many ways. And I think what really strikes me, um, Dan, not just about what your answer there, but in so many of the ways that you've described how to approach certain things, you've got a really, um, you've got a really clear sense of process, how these things can be process driven, um, you know, made made into systems, um, which I think makes it all feel more achievable because a lot of this stuff is qu- quite nebulous, maybe. Um, it's not a spreadsheet, it's humans. And trying to kind of, you know, marry humans with a process driven, successful uh, approach, I think makes it feel a lot more achievable and and like it can be uh, it can be made into a success. Um, so I'd like to thank you for your time, Dan. Would you like to uh, tell us where people can find more, um, maybe your website, more about your courses, your um, your books? Sure. Thank you. First of all, I wanted to thank you for this great discourse. You're um, you're deeply thoughtful. So thank you so much. Also, <laughs> I think I think you've just given me the idea of a fifth book title at least. Um, so through this, uh, you know, I loved your your line that you just said. Uh, <laughs> it's not just a spreadsheet; they're humans. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, oh, there you go. <laughs> Uh, my, my last name is sort of hard to spell, but if, uh, you know, you want it's danpontifrac.com. But the, the book that's most recent is really, uh, summarily about caring and that's probably easier goes to the same place, but it's leadcarewin.com. And, and that book is nine, um, very down to earth leadership lessons and behaviors. And as you mentioned, one of them is actually called stay present. And that's the the behavior uh, change versus time management change uh, opportunity of the of the nine there in the book. So again, thank you so much. Love this. Um, and one day we might even uh, clink glasses in a pub and share a beer. Wouldn't that be lovely? Wouldn't that be lovely? Well, uh, hopefully soon. Uh, Dan Pontefract, uh, previously Chief Envisioner and Chief Learning Officer at TELUS, um, but very much part of the TELUS and TELUS International family still, and author author and leadership strategist too. Uh, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll catch you soon. Cheerio. And I hope you really got a lot out of that interview, whether you're already experienced this whole area of employer-led education, or if you're just starting out. Uh, I think Dan's experience and passion and expertise really shone through, and I hope you took a lot from it. That is all we have for you for this episode. We are going to be back very soon with another episode of TELUS International Studios. TELUSinternational.com is the place to go if you want to find more, find out more about the company that brings you this podcast, TELUS International. Take care in the meantime, and we'll see you soon.